The AFEM Industry Insider is brought to you by This Is Distorted, the world's biggest producer and syndicator of electronic music programs and podcasts. For more information, go to thisisdistorted.com or at thisisdistorted on socials. On air, on demand, on brand. This is Distorted. <laughs> is the Industry Insider from the Association of Electronic Music. The AFEM Industry Insider. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Industry Insider, episode two in a brand new series of regular podcasts from the Association for Electronic Music, the global trade body representing the entire ecosystem of the electronic music world, from small startups to huge global companies and artists and individuals in all areas of our amazing, exciting, creative industry. Uh, I'm Andy Durant. My job for this is to sort of be the host and just to try and steer it in the right direction, I guess. And this month we're going to be talking about live streaming, which is of course a very very hot topic at the minute we've got a fantastic panel of people for our little discussion uh, we'll also be catching up with the AFEM management team to find out what's been going on in the organisation recently and we'll be hearing a little profile with Lindy Delight about the brilliant Masks for Music project as well so loads to get through so for obvious reasons that we don't need to go into again here 2020 seen a massive shift in focus for DJs and artists moving from live gigs and events to streaming and online becoming one of the main ways for them to engage and connect with their fans and audiences and it's really brought forward a conversation conversation that's been happening in the background in our industry for a while now and that of course is the issues of monetization and inaccurate royalty payments for the creators and the owners of the music that's being played along with the performing artist and dj of course as well or to put it more simply how are people who make music going to get paid when their tracks are played in live streams and what's happening in that field and what are the problems and what are the practices the best practices and what are some of the potential solutions i suppose as well so helping us pick apart the wild west world of live streaming this month are our expert panel, Frank Rohde, Loredana Cacciotti, uh, Nico Perez, Sylvia Montello, Tom Wiltshire and Yuri Doctor. And a huge thanks to you guys for giving up a bit of your time, everyone. Could you? Could we just start by you kind of quickly um, introducing yourselves and telling us what you do? Frank, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I work for a collective management organisation, APRA Amplus, here in this part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, Australasia region. And we represent songwriters, composers, and music publishers. And on the licensing side, it's trying to offer blanket solutions so that people can use musical works and not have takedowns from their live music streams. Hi, I'm Sylvia Montello. I'm head of business development at a company called Blocker. Um, what Blocker have developed is a database that looks at the songwriter data to make sure that the data is accurate and that they're basically writers of music get paid what they're due um, and the people recording the music get paid what they're due as well. Um, and prior to that, um, I spent a few years both at Cobalt and BMG um, running their digital supply chains. So very much involved in making sure that uh, accurate information goes out to the digital services, again, to make sure that people get paid properly. Hey there, yeah, I'm Tom, uh, I'm VP of Partnerships at Boiler Room. I've been there for, I guess, around five years. Um, and I deal with all kind of external partners, really, from um, brands and commercial entities that uh, Boiler Room's done a lot of work with um, over its 10-year history, but also record labels. Um, I'm often uh, the sort of point person for any blanket agreements that we have for like temporary whitelisting, et cetera, uh, and, and anything else really that, that kind of doesn't fall within a, um, uh, a f- 
sort of ticketed model. So I'm not working with promoters per se, but everyone else pretty much falls into, uh, into my remit. Hi, so I'm Loredana. I work at Fuga and I'm based in Amsterdam. Fuga is a music digital distributor and aggregator. And there I am their head of legal and from the commercial sites and licensing department. And prior to that, I worked for uh, 10, 12 years in the music industry in London, uh, working from Ministry of Sound to BBI, Meets Radio. So I kind of move across all the various aspects of, you know, licensing music and content from different type of um, entities and providers. Uh, I'm Yuri Doctor. I'm a CEO and founder of a MRT company, music recognition technology company called DJ Monitor. Started out in 2005, specialized in electronic music, uh, mainly aimed towards uh, events and venues playing electronic music. As you can imagine, uh, during this uh, COVID period, uh, the beginning of the year, we found that there were not too many uh, events still going on. Plus, all the uh, venues were basically closing down. Uh, therefore, we um, were uh, focusing on a uh, solution uh, regarding the monitoring and license clearing uh, of uh, uh, live streams. And uh, we've come uh, quite a, a long way and uh, about to go live with that. Uh, my name is Nico. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mixcloud. Um, traditionally, Mixcloud was a platform where you could upload a DJ mix or radio show. Uh, but this year, we launched a new live streaming element to the platform. Um, and I also look after a lot of our licensing and MRT deals and things like that. Perfect. So uh, very much an expert panel. Um, so on the last episode of this podcast, Kelly Money, who's a, an artist manager from Little Empire, she talked about how fans love seeing the artists perform on these live streams, especially while there's so few live events obviously happening around the world, but that people are maybe wanting to start seeing more from live streaming. So maybe, Nico, you can start us off. What does that kind of look like to you? What do you think fans want from it? I guess you guys have done some research on this. And, and what do artists want from it as well? Yeah, my, my personal opinion is that it's going to start to diverge and you'll see two different types of live stream. See the very kind of like high production value and those live streams will probably uh, have a ticket price uh, with those. So we've got a few coming up with Flying Lotus, uh, Ray Sheen Murphy, Leon Vinehall uh, and LaFonda that are in that sort of mode. And then I think that we'll also start to see a new form of live streams or an evolution of the live streaming where it becomes more about interaction uh, and more of a two-way communication. So you'll see production sessions, people starting to do tutorials, people like chatting with their fans. So I think we're going to start to see more of that as well and people really actually taking advantage of what the medium offers. Okay, wicked. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about Mixcloud Live and how you guys managed to get that up and running in a bit. But do you think live streaming is still solely a way for people to be able to just perform and share stuff with their audience or are people genuinely now seen as, as a potential revenue stream as well? I think it's kind of inevitable that um, people start to look at it as a way to generate revenue because, you know, you have to look at the wider kind of climate of what's going on this year. And I think that earlier this summer, maybe people, you know, they were doing it for fun. There was a lot of kind of like, this is a new thing, having fun with it. A lot of people maybe thought that clubs and venues and gigs would come back towards the end of the summer. And now what we're seeing is the exact opposite. So I think there's a realization setting in that if you're a touring artist or touring DJ, um, you know, your main revenue source has been cut off for the rest of this year, probably a significant portion of next year. And so, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, you're going to be looking at 
any other way you can to generate an income. Tom, some of the big um, tech-owned user-generated live stream platforms like Twitch and Facebook and stuff, they provide access, obviously, to massive, massive, huge audiences, but they do appear to be a little bit behind the curve in terms of deploying some of those processes and policies to make sure that the, the creators and the owners, the actual owners of the music that are played in all these streams, actually receive any, any revenue, any money back. So just wondering, why do you think that is? I mean, I think that they, Facebook just generally, I think, have their head in the sand on the issue and probably they, they feel like it, they, it's a losing battle with everything that's going to come in with Article 13, when's that, next year? And generally, I, I think that we'll see less and less live streaming on Facebook. Twitch, on the other hand, I think is because of the amount of financial backing they have, um, and just generally our Amazon's kind of bullish approach to coming into the music space, they'll, that will increase massively. It, they, they obviously like, you know, and, and Bezos has been asked quite pointedly what the deal is with um, rights uh, in relation to Amazon and also in particular Twitch. And he just sort of says like, I don't know. And I think that's his way of basically like playing hardball with the majors in particular. Interestingly though, like Twitch are, chucking around a lot of money to basically commission and try and buy up the live streaming market and and get a lot of big, big names and a big wins and a lot of headlines for the platform. I think if that money in the short term is being di- distributed to artists, then, you know, it's the, it's, it's the same. It won't be obviously being distributed to the master rights holders and that is a big issue and something that I feel like everybody uh, who's moving aco- across to Twitch or could potentially move across to Twitch can really put pressure on them as a platform to then take it up the chain to Amazon to, to sort their rights issues out. They're very much a user-centric platform, uh, they do off- obviously offer a lot of what Nico was talking about in terms of that uh, additional layer of interaction and real, like real time, uh, the ability to talk in real time with with your audience. Very much like we've seen on Instagram Live uh, over lockdown, a lot of um, producers in particular sitting there and doing like a production workshop live and being able to talk and, and interact. And I think it's a really, really a powerful way for an artist to connect with that audience. Obviously, they're not monetizing that. And, and Nico hats off, like Mixcloud Live was, was a really, really big, big announce at the beginning of lockdown. And I know you guys pushed, were already working on that and pushed that through because of the situation that was unfolding. Uh, and similarly, Twitch, you know, the, the ability for people, viewers to like to tip uh, and pay in the actual moment itself uh, let alone all the subs kind of model that, that you can do on that platform. It's a really, really interesting and attractive uh, and I think healthy uh, platform because it will push on other other parts of the industry. Nico, I'm sure you guys are looking at ways in which, other ways in which, or like additional ways in which uh, artists can look to monetize within the live stream. I think the whole tipping thing within Twitch is is really cool, particularly when you think about um, certain genres of dance music that involve like the DJ like wheeling up a tune and stuff like that you know people kind of almost like egging them on to do that kind of thing it, it, it really like in a way gamifies the whole live streaming thing and obviously that's how Twitch um, how Twitch made their their name and their money for the for the last uh, 10 years or so can I chime in for a second because I really want to let people know what's going on with Twitch because I think it's really important that everybody knows that they do not respect copyrighted music. They do not pay for the songs that are getting played. They have been approached by the record labels. They've been asked to pay. They've been asked to do a license. 
you have one of the largest companies in the world there, Amazon, which owns Twitch, uh, and they're actively not paying artists. Um, it just feels to me like that is shortchanging the entire music industry. And, you know, maybe they're paying people to do individual shows or they're paying people to come onto the platform as DJs or promoters, but without the fundamental underlying uh, payments going to the people who own the music and whose music is being utilized, I think, honestly, it's, it's, um, it's disappointing to see that. Just, just to add to that, I'd, I, I'd agree there, like the whole, um, the whole reason that, that Borderroom did, uh, did a distribution deal with Apple Music was very much because they're an artist-centric platform. And I think that that, that is super, super important. I guess one of the one of the benefits and one of the things that Twitch does offer is the ability for like to monetize that live interaction part that obviously Instagram wouldn't offer. So I guess getting rid of the kind of user generated DJ set uh, content within Twitch would mitigate a lot of that problems because if it's like people, you know, basically doing talks and workshops around their own material, then that's a kind of like, that's, that, that is all above board. But I guess, yeah, the kind of wild west days of YouTube uh, in the early days with live streaming uh, and obviously what is happening now with, with Twitch is, uh, yeah, is alarming. I feel like AFM and, and, you know, we, and, and everyone on this call could do a lot to kind of pressure them into, into changing their ways. Yeah, I should say as well, I think those talks are kind of happening right now. So just I guess it's just a watch this space on that. I know that AFM are in, in conversation with, with Twitch right now, so fingers crossed. So I'm going to put this one to um, maybe Frank and Sylvia. A big issue and a, a bit of a bone of contention for the DJs and the performers is having their streams blocked or having tracks muted sort of midstream so you get like a big bit of silence in there. Why... Why actually does this happen, and what are the? Is there any potential solutions for that? The, one of the main reasons it happens is when the rights holders don't have the payment mechanisms in place or the right licenses in place from those platforms that actually pay them for the music that's being played. So, I mean, to give an example with Facebook, um, when Facebook launched into music. Um, they specifically said that they weren't intending on offering a service that would act as a streaming platform, so to let people listen to music continuously. Um, and they don't have a license in place currently to enable that to happen. Um, the licenses that they do have in place, especially with the majors, are one that do allow the majors to turn around and block their content being used if they don't want it being used in that particular way. So with live streaming, that's why you often get a DJ stream where some of the music in there is perfectly fine and then they might hit upon something that's owned by a major or owned by an artist who has specifically blocked the usage and then it will be muted and it will drop out. The platforms do that to protect themselves because otherwise they'll be liable to having takedown notices uh, sent to them, which you know, Twitch have, is a great example of that. They've had a barrage of that. Um, come their way in recently because of their lack of, of a proper licensing mechanism to be playing the music. So that's, that's one of the main reasons really that it happens. Uh, it's the lack of proper license um, and then some of the right hold, rights holders, quite rightly, determining that they don't want their content being played on a platform if it's not going to be monetized for them and their artists. I should add that most of the takedowns happen on the recording side. Um, and it doesn't tend to be the publishers specifically or the collective societies 
um, that are asking for those requests. And I've even heard stories where on the recordings, depending on some of the independent electronic music labels, if they're having some of their repertoire distributed through, say, Universal or some of the other publishers, um, oh, sorry, labels, be clear that it's the labels, um, that some of the works that are green-lighted to not be taken down are still being affected. So it, it's super complicated on a number of levels on the recording side, but that's where we really need to find a solution. And some of the suggestions that, you know, I've talked about with AFEM have been included where if a work looks like it's going to be blocked or taken down, maybe a flag could be, you know, um, sent through to the DJ to mix into another track or, you know, it would be the preference is always to monetize it and keep that money somehow in escrow so that the rightful copyright owner could be found rather than actually taking down the stream or blocking or silencing the DJ. So these are the things that we should be working towards. I don't think there's any question of the complexity. I think that copyright uh, traditionally has always been very territorially based. It's like based on this region or Australia. It's based out of England, the UK. And so with the internet, obviously that just doesn't make sense anymore. And we're in this transition period which I think COVID is going to fast track, I think, a lot of the licensing on a broader sort of um, wider scale. And it's going to move away from that very um, territory-based licensing regime. I was going to say, I, I kind of, I got involved in a bit of a, a, a Twitter storm argument a couple of weeks ago um, because it's a really, it's a bit of a catch-22 um, from the DJ side of, uh, from their sort of point of view. Uh, there'll be record labels and promo companies sending them lots of music um, right now, you know, because they obviously need to plug their tracks and get them out there. And the DJ's only out, their only outlet to play these tracks and support them is through live streaming. And then they'll put their live streams out there and then they'll be blocked by the same record labels that are sending them the tracks. So I guess it, it's, it's a lot more complicated from that than, than that. But from the DJ's kind of point of view, you can see where that frustration comes from. It's like, you're sending me your tracks, I'm supporting them and you're blocking them as soon as they're out there it, it's not necessarily the labels that would be blocking that so if it's um if it's pre-release material so yeah if, uh, advanced copies etc um if they haven't been registered yet so the uh, i don't want to get technical but if they haven't been registered uh so the issrc that recording isn't in the database of a particular platform then the platform won't recognize it as something that they are okay to play in the first place so that's that's another complexity around it but potentially also another solution that actually if those registrations did happen so if the label registered something that they were sending out even before it was on commercial release, if they just wanted to, to register the sort of white labels, um, if those were already in the systems of the platforms, then there is a chance that they wouldn't get blocked. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a catch-22 around that as well. So a lot of it is done by, the, you know, the recognition of the platform rather than a label particularly saying, well, we've sent you this white label, but actually we're going to block it being played because that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So again, it, it's around the intricacies of, of, of licensing and registration that that can happen. So do we all, just as a, I suppose as a group, think it is a reasonable request to ask all live streaming platforms to pay licenses for the music played and, and have the right technology in there to, to identify what's being played to make money and make sure the, the money's being paid back? Is that a no-brainer or is it a bit more nuanced than that? Open to yeah. anyone. No-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> 
they're making they're making money they're they're you know they're benefiting from that content being on their platform because it draws in an audience uh, and so if they're benefiting they can be placing advertising against that content for example which obviously facebook and and twitch and the other platforms do then i absolutely don't see why they shouldn't be forced to put the mechanism in place to pay people for the music that they've been playing I mean, another argument that I've, I feel like I'm just trying, I'm playing devil's advocate, I mean, but I guess that's my job, but an argument that I've heard quite often in defense of the, of the platforms, especially the smaller ones, you know, the, the startups and the more interesting new ones is that the, the labels and the publishers and the CMOs, the people who own the music actually make it quite difficult to get a license for the music played. It goes back to what we we're saying about how things are done on a territory by territory basis. But now we live in a world where everything is available instantly all around the world and the territories are very, very blurred. So, I mean, is that a fair comment? Is it quite a difficult thing to do? How complicated is it for a live streaming platform to actually get the legit licenses required? It's, I think it's complex in terms of international because you need to get um, so many different licenses from each different region. But if you look at an organisation like Afro Ancos, where I work, to actually get the licence for this territory, I think it's quite easy. So to deal with each territory, I think that they do have licence agreements in place, and I'm talking from the CMO publisher point of view. But the complexity for me is the fact that it's now global. Yeah, well, actually, uh, we work with uh, quite a few events uh, who decided to go online. Um, uh, some of them went quite uh, were quite successful, like Tomorrowland, that sold over one million tickets. Uh, in advance, it, it it was just too complicated for them to come up with a proper license for uh, for the event because you know what, there is no live stream license right now, not officially, and uh, it's being put together as we speak. And um, uh, just like uh, Frank said, we have to look at the uh, the authorized side uh, and and all the mandates that go with that. So, uh, for instance, uh, the mechanical rights. Yeah, we have the sync rights and we have the performance rights. On the other hand, we have neighboring rights. But hey, in the U.S., they don't know neighboring rights. So we talk about master rights. When is it uh, neighboring rights? When is it master rights? How are you going to clear that? Uh, it is, it, it, it's very daunting because every um, territory basically has their own rules because it's, it's really the amount of societies, uh, CMOs, uh, who get to decide on that, plus all the exclusions from catalogs, for instance. Because of the online, there is no reciprocal rights anymore. Um, uh, most of uh, uh, most of the rights holders withdrew their rights. So, um, in in essence, a, a most CMOs can only represent their catalog that they represent of their writers. So, um, it's it, it's it's very 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 difficult. And uh, Tomorrowland basically took the approach of let's just do it. They had a basic uh, deal with uh, Sabam. And uh, let's see what happens afterwards. So we're monitoring the uh, um, the uh, 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 output for the, uh, all the DJ sets. And hey, there's a lot of money to divide, be divided. So that sort of breaks open doors as well, because now we're not just talking about hundred euros. We're talking about possibly millions of euros, you know, going towards rights holders. So it's 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 it's. It, it wasn't possible, you know, by the time that they had all the licenses in place, which they wouldn't, uh, they would never make that because you can never get all the licenses in advance. 
then by the time Tomorrowland could no longer happen online. So they just went ahead with it. They make reservations. And now afterwards, we uh, we talk to the majors, for instance, and see uh, what percentage of uh, their repertoire was actually played. And this is very interesting because this is the um, opposite of what's happening right now, where the majors ask for a lump sum payment in advance without data. And now we have the reverse situation where uh, we actually pinpoint, okay, so uh, Sony, uh, you should get 22%, uh, and these are the artists uh, which are played and authors, et cetera, et cetera. And UMG, this is your percentage. And this is the way that it should work. It should be pay-per-play, actually, because we can measure it. Also with streaming and uh, uh, live streaming, we can measure it. And uh, so I, I, I think that we're making great steps towards this. And as I said, as there is money to divide, um, we have more leverage now. Yuri, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I know, uh, I think your company is kind of looking at developing a, a bit of a one-stop shop for anyone who's looking for a live stream license. How close are you to actually being able to make that a reality and, and cracking that? Uh, we, we work together with, uh, for instance, PPL. Uh, in achieving something like this, I uh, advise them uh, with respect to uh, the um, the rate, for instance, which were applicable. Because initially, the re recording industry was looking at the same type of rates as, for instance, with Spotify, which is not reasonable. Because Spotify is is you know I I see it as as a retailer almost selling their music. So it's you know if if they get 60, 70 percent, it's 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 fine. But live stream is something completely different because you cannot select which track uh, the DJ is going to play, rather not because you like Carl Cox and uh, you know the fact that uh, he's playing new music that you never heard before. That's what's really exciting about this. So in that essence, it should be viewed more um, as a radio type of uh, broadcast versus uh, uh, an on-demand type of uh, broadcast. But that really takes some time with uh, most master rights owners uh, specifically to to uh, come down. Uh, I understand that uh, um, PPL is making great progress with this at the moment, and hopefully within a, a few weeks, we'll have uh, a mandate coming from the, the majors, and that would be spectacular. Um, uh, unfortunately, as I said, and yeah, I cannot disclose uh, all the rates, but I can tell you that because I know that Mixcloud pays about 60% uh, total or something, Nico? Am I wrong? Hold yeah, on. so we, we, we pay 65%, 65, on yeah. our individual channel based subscription. So if you subscribe to Carl Cox or John Digweed, 65% of that goes out to the labels, artists, songwriters, and publishers. Um, but I agree with Yuri when it's a live stream, the way this the industry works is lower interactivity. And so it should be a lower rate because you're not choosing the song that you want to play. Um, but I would say, you know, this is, it is complex. There's, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different entities that you have to do licenses with around the world, but it is possible. We're, we're a team of 40 people, a small team, and we've managed to secure licenses with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music, Merlin, uh, Believe, PRS, ICE, Saban, Sasem, UMPG, Warner Chapel, Sony, like I could go on and on. It's possible <laughs> right. if, you, if you have the will to do it. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm saying Twitch, which is owned by Amazon and has, I don't know how many billions of dollars in the bank, they could do this if they wanted to. 
but they yeah. choose not to. And I think it's really important to understand that crucial fact. So, Nico, I mean, Mixcloud Live launched in was it April this year, and it is a really good example of a live stream service which proactively licenses and identifies the music played so, so that money can then flow back to the creators and the owners as well as the DJs and the performers, and I think that's the really interesting bit as well. But as you said there, you were able to do that. <clears throat> How were you able to launch this service and a system like this while some of those, as you said, much larger services are still grappling to solve those issues? How with 40 people did you manage to pull that off? I think it comes back to the fact that we as a company are built by DJs and artists and music lovers. And this is what we care about. This is the industry that we want to support. This is, you know, we feel it's fundamentally important to support these artists and creators and it's it's our sole focus whereas you know facebook is a social network djs and electronic artists are kind of like a tiny minority for them twitch is primarily a gaming platform music maybe makes up five or ten percent of what what they stream and so when you look at it through that lens and you look at you know is is this really a priority for them do they care about it enough to solve what are admittedly like complex, difficult, complicated licensing laws and regulations, you know, then you start to understand actually, you know, maybe this is just a small thing on the side for them and they don't really care about it that much. Mm. Well, actually, I, I want to continue where we left off because um, uh, through uh, the deals that we're currently striking, uh, Buma is taking the approach and I think that that's quite spectacular as well of online events uh, with the same type of um, uh, uh, licensing structure as a normal event would. So you talk about 7% right now, which is uh, a long cry from, from some of the other uh, licensing uh, fees out there. And all in all, I think that uh, we should be able to offer uh, licenses as soon as it's uh, possible um, for around the 30% mark. So that includes neighboring master and, uh, and uh, uh, author rights in total. So that's, you know, more workable, I think, in the end for uh, all the uh, events who actually want to go out there and stream their event. Uh, one of our clients in India, uh, UMG asked them in advance 2 million euros to stream uh, Sunburn, for instance, which is ridiculous to ask that type of money in India in advance you know, you're killing, you're stifling uh, all the initiatives out there this way. And wh what's going to happen? They're going to stream it anyway. But e uh, either they don't generate any money, so there's nothing to divide, or um, they, they go with, uh, um, with, with, with different type of uh, structures like simulcasting. Uh, that's what another client of ours did, uh, Perucaville. Or they go, uh, uh, they don't get the licenses, but still collect. That's, for instance, what uh, Tomorrowland. But then, of course, they do the re, uh, distribution later on of those royalties. So there's there's various initiatives, but I think it's it's very very important that the rights holders also uh, take a good look at at um, making this system way less complicated. Sounds pretty exciting though, Yuri. It says that you're really kind of a long way down the line to cracking that, which is fantastic. Just a quick question, I guess, for everyone really, or anyone who might want to chip in who, who has any personal experience. Apart from Mixcloud, which live streaming platforms are the most advanced and fair in terms of making sure the creators of the music's played and, and you know the performing DJs have the options to receive some revenue? Do we know of any that are, are, are actually doing some good things right now? 
<laughs> a deathly I mean, I mean, silence. I mean, Tom, Tom, Tom said it that Apple seemed to be taking this seriously, and you know the rep- the the boiler room kind of deal that they did. You know, they are paying the artists who are played within within the mixes and the shows. Mm-hmm. So I I respect that. I think they're doing a good job there. Um, but there's not really many others. No, I'd agree. It's sort of a you know well well known that they pay much more than um, uh, their competitors. They firmly believe it's an artist-centric uh, model um, rather than making the platform like specific to users. And obviously, we've all seen the flack that Spotify have been getting over the last few months um, from the artist community because of the platform kind of favouring users over, over, over the creators. That said... Apple isn't a video platform. They do some video stuff, obviously, but you know it's not a video platform. And given everything that's happened this year and the need for artists to visually connect, um, yeah, I mean it's difficult. I think Mixcloud is is the only option out there. And as I said at the beginning, like congratulations for getting that for getting that out because it's been a, it's been a real lifeline um, for people. And I, and I really hope you guys can can, can continue to build on that. I mean, I think the, the one, if I'd say the one big challenge going, going to the video point, and this is kind of getting into technical licensing law, but if you want to host a live video, it's fine. It's fairly simple to get webcasting style licenses for that. But if you want to host a video to view again, you need to clear sync rights. And that is an absolute minefield because you have to clear every single musical work one by one. Um, and if there's, if there's one thing that's most broken right now with music licensing online it's sync rights it's just impossible basically yeah i completely agree and i think it 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 feels like i don't know maybe i'm being a bit simplistic about it but if if you could get a license in place that said if if this track is being synced with um with a video of a dj performing then we can automatically clear it for on-demand as well as for the original live stream would cut out a lot of those complications because the syncing element of, of a track with somebody you know playing on the decks is a very different type of sync from using a piece of music in an advert or using it you know where somebody is is promoting a product yeah okay i suppose you could argue the dj is promoting themselves and their djing skills but they're also promoting the music that they're playing so i I think it's it's a nonsense that the sync rules at the moment are so restrictive that you would have to clear every single track just so that it can be performed you know be played underneath somebody who is on the decks It, it makes no sense that's something that i think we should be looking at um, and putting some real uh, pressure on the industry to have a look at making something that, that potentially could be a fairly simple change. I, I don't know what everyone else thinks, but it it, it seems like it should be quite simple to me. So, Loredana, in, in terms of the users, do you think that most DJs and performing artists are actually aware of the differences between these platforms and the different copyright clearances and the, the revenue split policies. Is this just something that's uh, kind of an industry thing and we know about it behind the scenes? Or do you think there is DJs out there who are thinking, you know, well, I'll, I'll use this one because I know they're paying back? I wish, but I sincerely think that that's probably not the case because as you can see, even from the previous question, you know, when we all had to go silence as to which one is the best service to use beside Miss Cloud, it kind of gives you an idea of the level of luck of knowledge that at the moment is around there. And partially I think it's given because of course, because of COVID, 
this became, you know, an pressing situation that wasn't that much of a hype uh, before, or it was coming, but it was coming at a piece that would have allowed, you know, changes to be a bit more, um, you know, slow, whether now everybody needs trying to, you know, get into live streaming, but it's really, really hard to understand how it works, not just because we just say that the, you know, legal framework is, could be definitely simplified, but also because the offerings are different. So when we are talking about, uh, you know, uh, Meets Clouds and Twitch and Facebook and the issues that might uh, be there, we are talking about, you know, companies that decide to come to the market with different offerings. Now, whether these offerings are justified or not, that is up to, you know, I think the music industry and the people that decide to put their music on these services, whether they are getting enough value to justify the exceptions. So it's uh, obviously, ideally, it would be good to have uh, a common front. Because what I think is happening right now is that people are kind of evaluating uh, what benefit they get out of probably three things. One is the lack of knowledge, because it's absolutely unclear. The moments that, you know, uh, Twitch announced uh, their, uh, you know, Twitch soundtrack new service. The fact that, uh, you know, the press releases refer to uh, Twitch being now licensed creates an immense confusion around people. And it's not, I mean, I'm not saying that it was intentional. I'm sure, I mean, it's how you announce a deal. A deal has been made, the license has been striked, but that doesn't say anything about the payment structure behind it. And whether, you know, with traditional streaming services, everybody has got some sort of an understanding of what's going on there. When you have different parties coming to the market with different offerings, it's just creating a lot of confusions because people just don't know how it works, or they might not actually have enough knowledge to know that what we were discussing before, having a profile on Twitch and having subscribers means that the person having the profile is going to get paid, but the actual right owners are not going to get paid. So, or the music, you know, being, um, or, you know, you're not going to get paid, but as they, uh, you know, put it, you are getting a marketing value out of it, you're getting exposure. And then I think that the discussion becomes, are the artists, the DJs, the performers aware enough of how these things work to be able to assess whether it makes sense for them for this to happen or not? You know, because a deal can be anything. I can, you know, give away my stuff for free. I'm moving houses, so right now I'm giving away a lot of stuff for free. And is that a bear game? You know, that would make sense economically. No, it doesn't. But it makes sense to me because I need to be able to get rid of this stuff because I have no space in whatever I'm moving whatever is my reasoning. And the same applies, you know, when, and, and we usually forget about these things or putting, you know, uh, music in a context of what would you do if we were talking about renting a flat or selling a house or, you know, your car. And would you do the same type of deal? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but taking it back into the music industry, you know, sometimes exposure might be of more value for an emerging artist than actually receiving a payment back where there may be a more uh, you know, established artist might actually be in a position where payment is actually given on top of the exposure that they value because it's actually maybe another type of balance. So they are bringing exposure to the platform, which is the opposite direction. How do you align all of this without the common knowledge? It's tough because I think that right now we are in some sort of a, you know, a fear of missing out situation. We need to do something. We need to be somewhere. What are the streaming platforms out there? Let's go there and then we figure out what's happening. 
and it's becoming a momentum. And, and that's where I think I'm really happy that I'm kind of working with Afim on the Get Played, Get, get, played, get Paid uh, campaign because we are kind of aiming to bring this sort of awareness in the industry, in the electronic music industry, or even outside that, because I think it's really vital that people know what's happening because they definitely, I, I don't think that there is, I think that there is a lot of confusion out there at the moment. Um, similar question then to to Tom, if Boiler Room and Mix Mag and DJ Mag and Circle and Beatpot, for example, if they choose to only direct their audiences to platforms who've got the policies and processes in place to pay the creators of the music, do you think the the big tech giant owned ones, you know, your Twitches and your Facebook, they might start to take notice and commit to doing some more improved track IDs and revenue models? Or, I mean, we have touched on it earlier on. Is it too small fry for them to worry about? It's a good question whether it's too, or a good point, we'd like to ask whether it's too small fry for them to worry about. Um, I'd say probably yes, it is too small fry for them to worry about currently. Um, but that's because they're probably going through, well, Facebook less so, but certainly Twitch, as I said, I think Facebook is just going give to up, give up on it. I think certainly Twitch and any other platforms that would launch um, in the near future They'll be, they're going through a testing phase, right? So, like, they want to prove the value of niche genres, if you like, or certainly, like, live streaming of, of DJs in particular. Like, for just comparing the distribution deal that we've done with Apple, like, it's significant in our world, but for Apple Music, like, you know, it's not at all. Hardly anyone there is going to know, is going to know about it because they've got enormous things to worry about. Um, you know, like the next Drake album and all these things, you know, it's, it's, that's what, that's where the numbers are. So it's hard to say really. Um, obviously I think everyone in our, world wants to be putting pressure on them to sort out the rights issues and i totally ag agree with uh, a lot of what's been said here or everything that's been said here really about the you know the direct like pay from a play that is the that is the the, the ideal model that's that's the whole way really that the the, the um dj mix portion of the royalties uh within apple music is working it's different to the to the rest of um, to the rest of Apple Music, it's it's more of a walled garden um, for mixed content. Um, but I mean, even like the platforms that that we do use, the third party platforms that we do use, in particular YouTube, which obviously our entire archive is on. We we worked several years ago to um, make sure that the uh, content ID system was working as well as it could do within our all of our content. But even then, like it's not picking up every track it's picking up such a small number of of uh, of tracks within within a long form mix like at best a third um per per mix and and that's just not good enough um and so it, it's it's a it's gonna be a long slog and really difficult to do and i think actually what what the only way in which it um will solve this is by companies like boiler room building their own video platform and, and doing it or doing it in collaboration uh, with, with Mixcloud, which, you know, obviously we've, we've, we've talked about um, before because the, the, that will be the only way that we can kind of solve it. Cause it's like made for our scene and, and for, and for, and, and, and made by our scene as well. And it's interesting you say about um, not a huge amount of stuff being 
being picked up by the uh, by the tech. I mean, Yuri, Frank, Sylvia identifying the music streamed and then matching that data to to report on those correct recordings and copyrights is like absolutely crucial in making sure that this this works. So, what steps do music creators and record labels and publishers have to take? What's the best practice to make sure this actually is working as best you could? Because I just know from a just from a DJ and radio presenter side that I will often get tracks that you know sent through on promo and it'll be titled as um, you know wav v1 or you know <laughs> mp32 and, and and you think well if that's happening here and that's going to radio like i can imagine that there is an equal amount of mess behind the scenes uh, you know with all this content id stuff so what is that best best practice what should be people doing Absolutely agree. I think it doesn't matter how good the algorithms are with the MRT music recognition technology. If the song's not registered with the CMO, it's not going to pick up and pay through. And uh, obviously works can be registered after the fact and that money is held over and then paid out at a later date. But as a publisher, obviously the most important thing is to make sure that they're actively registering the works and if you're a songwriter composer and you're not represented by a publisher that you register them with your cmo it's as basic as that um that's the that's got to be the starting point added to that as well as unsexy as it is the word metadata is actually making sure that it's right i mean yeah it's it's not the thing that people leap out of bed in the morning when you're working in electronic music it's like yay i'll do my label copy but if if labels work with their artists and work with their writers to make sure that they understand the importance of making sure that the information they give is accurate. So who needs to get what share of a composition? Who needs to be put as having a producer credit? Who needs to have a writer credit? Who needs to have a performer credit? Because a lot of artists in this space don't actually necessarily know which registrations they should be putting through so that they can have the revenue that's available from those income streams. For the platforms to actually move on a lot of these issues we've been talking about, it has to be commercial. So if live streaming, they see money coming in, there's going to be more incentive for them to work with companies like Yuri, DJ Monitor to ID the tracks. In lieu of not having that sort of solution, CMOs like Abra Amcos have a manual claim system. So if you're a DJ and you've done a live stream, you can make a manual claim on that. And money is set aside from the license fees from those tech platforms and allocated towards those set lists. And we have done a trial with DJ Monitor. So there's a number of things that can still be done, even though we would love to change the world overnight and have all of, you know, a great solution, you know, right now and readily available. And also looking into the future, into my magical mirror ball, I think that convergent is, convergence is, is the big thing. I think when nightclubs hopefully come back online soon, there's going to be a lot of live streams that will still take place. I think we found that the older generation that don't necessarily want to go out clubbing next to, you know, the 20-year-olds are enjoying this experience. I think that um, a lot of innovators will still want to do live streaming. So we need to look at that and the future and converging the physical with the actual online and in that the whole thing with gaming. I think gaming is going to be a big part of the future of live streaming and music. 
Awesome. That's quite a nice positive way to finish as well. I mean, just to round this off, I should mention that from the AFEM side, that the live stream Get Played, Get Paid uh, initiative, the core principles are nearly finished. They'll be up on the website to give a good set of guidelines um, for all this kind of thing. In fact, by the time this podcast comes out, they might even be ready. So keep an eye on associationforelectronicmusic.org. Um, well, a huge thank you for your time, guys, to Frank, Lordana, Nico, Sylvia, Tom and Yuri. We all really, really appreciate you getting involved. We'll make sure there's links to everyone's profiles uh, and any of the projects that we've talked about in the description on this podcast as well. So thanks again, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. This is the AFEM Industry Insider. The podcast from the Association for Electronic Music. Well, a huge thanks again to everyone for giving up a bit of their very precious time and getting involved with our panel this month. If you've got any ideas of topics or areas of conversation that you'd like us to put together a panel for next time, then do give us a shout through the socials. AFEMorg is the Twitter and AFEMorg.net is the Facebook page and, of course, there's the shiny new website as well. Uh, next up, we're going to hand over to Greg Marshall, General Manager of the AFEM, to give us a quick update and a roundup of what AFEM has been working on over the last few weeks and months in an ever-changing and incredibly turbulent time for our scene. So over to you, Greg. Thanks, Andy. Um, well, the live sector being hardest hit, we've been involved in a number of collaborations over the last few months to help support our members and the broader electronic music community through the pandemic. Uh, we partnered with the NTIA on the Let's Dance campaign to lobby UK government to recognise dance music within the arts, to ensure businesses in electronic music and events were eligible to apply for the Cultural Recovery Fund. Been engaging with the Global Nighttime Recovery Plan, that's a platform created by Vibe Lab in Berlin, to bring together nightlife reps to share intel, for multi-stage reports to help support live and club operators, adjust business models and survive and, and interact with local authorities. Uh, another key piece of work Ongoing is research globally on safe opening electronic music event models with a particular focus on rapid testing access models. So, yeah, we've been looking for that blueprint of what safe and viable club or festival event might be. And so we can then advocate to governments for trials across territories. You know, in parallel with that emergency response work, we've been progressing in initi initiatives around anti-piracy and diversity, inclusion, health, green initiatives, music rights and royalties and live streaming. Uh, I guess a, a key thing upcoming is our, our code of conduct against sexual harassment and gender discrimination, which will be publicly launched this month, supported by AFEM membership of over 220 companies. Um, we've been doing lots of panels. The Brighton Music Conference ran AFEM panels on how the industry is tackling climate change and also on strategies for diversity and inclusion earlier in October. We have panels running at ADE, uh, at Mental Health One on how to mentally manage the next six months and also one on gender equality on the dance, uh, on the work floor. And, and on November the 4th, we're running a live streaming Get Play, Get Pay panel at uh, Most Wanted Berlin conference, which is, of course, the key subject for this, uh, this podcast. Um, I guess just a, a couple of words on on that initiative. So this, you know, the live streaming get played, get paid initiative is is because of the huge growth in DJ live streams. And it presents that opportunity to review the transfer, the value transfer models, and and seek to improve the accuracy of, of payments for the creators and rights holders of the music played, as well as the performing artist and DJ. So so yeah, we we know that the process is behind music rights clearance, content ID, reporting and revenue for live streaming are complex. 
So we've defined a set of core principles as simply as possible, just the top level asks, which key industry stakeholders involved in live streaming should aspire to and move towards. So, so yeah, by, you know, by presenting core principles as simply as we can, we hope to achieve broader understanding, industry-wide support and momentum towards solving the issues. Um, and yeah, those, those core principles uh, will be up on our website within the next few weeks. Um, I guess finally a note, we just announced the result of our executive board election, you know, a democratically elected body which governs AFEM. So full details of this and, and all the initiatives and activities we're progressing can be found on our newly launched website. Uh, so yeah, please head over to associationforelectronicmusic.org you know, to see the new site and which was set up to become an education and industry intel resource for all. Um, yeah, thanks. The Association for Electronic Music presents Industry Insider. Industry Insider. Thank you very much, Greg Marshall, General Manager, AFEM. Um, before we go, each episode, we just want to hand over a few minutes to one of our members to round off the show and, and give a little plug to their company or a project that they're working on and tell us a little bit more about what they're doing. Um, and a project that looks really, really interesting and positive at the minute is Masks for Music, headed up by the newly appointed board member for the uh, exec board, um, Lindy Delight. So take it away, Lindy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to tell you about Master Music today. So my name is Lindy Delight. I run a artist management, brand management and showcase management agency called Delight Management. And during the lockdown, we realized that a lot of people in our music industry were suffering, uh, basically lost all the revenue that they'd been forecasting for the year. So we wanted to try to find a solution where anyone in the music industry can generate a bit of revenue during this time, but also find a product that we knew that people were spending money on and try to divert that revenue um, from various uh, other sources and basically divert that directly into the music industry. So we thought masks were a perfect product to target. And then, of course, because it's part of the music industry, we created Masks for Music. So Masks for Music was created for anyone that works in the music industry, whether you be a bartender, someone that does guest list, uh, someone that does lighting, all the way to booking agencies, um, organizations, anyone that's music industry related can join. We wanted to have three main points that we promote during this campaign. So one is, of course, um, having a direct way for fans to be able to support their favorite um, artist booking agencies, organizations. We also want to raise awareness for the impact on the music industry and the live events industries. And we also wanted to have a direct um, solution for the protection against infectious diseases. So we know that masks are going to be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future. We know even if you just have to wear them in the transport or wear them in your grocery store, they're going to be a part of our lives and they'll also be a part of how uh, events will begin to reopen. So we know that these are going to be around for a while. Signing up is very easy. It takes about three minutes. You go to our site, you sign up, you include your Facebook or your Instagram handle. We verify everyone manually to make sure that you are who you say that you are and also that you work in the music industry. But once you're approved, you get a unique link. With your unique link, you're able to share that anywhere throughout your networks, whether it be on social media, whether it be in newsletters, or um, banner campaigns if you're, say, a media site, and you're able to generate 50% of that sale. So this isn't 50% of the profit, this is 50% of the sale. We wanted to make sure that the percentage of the share was significant because we know that everyone needs significant help. 
10% as well of the sale goes to music industry related charities, 21% of the sale goes to production and packing, and 19% goes to all of the operations costs. Now we have also started the next phase, which is doing custom designs for festivals, for artists and other brands. So this is another way where uh, we can have, of course, multiple masks selling on our, on our sites and be able to give visibility as well for the brands and artists, etc., around the world. So if you want to get involved, visit www.masksformusic.com and sign up. Like I said, it takes three minutes. If you want to become a partner, you can email me directly at partners at maskformusic.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. This is the AFEM Industry Insider. Thank you very much to Lindy Delight and a massive thanks for listening to you. I really hope you found it interesting and uh, you got something out of it. Let us know what you think, uh, what else you'd like us to cover or talk about. I'd be really interested to hear any thoughts. You can always, um, you can well, you can shout me directly if you want me. It's Andy Durant, A-N-D-I-D-U-R-R-A-N-T on Twitter is probably best. Or if you'd like to find out more about the AFEM, maybe you're not a member yet, go to associationforelectronicmusic.org, AFEMorg on Twitter or AFEMorg.net on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Take care look after each other work together be good be kind be careful catch you next time the afem industry insider is brought to you by this is distorted the world's biggest producer and syndicator of electronic music programs and podcasts for more information go to thisisdistorted.com or at this is distorted on socials on air on demand on brand this is distorted